Amen. Well, let's study his word tonight. We're in Mark chapter 10 tonight. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As a reminder, we're reading from ESV tonight. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it's page 846 in my Bible, I don't know where it is in yours, but. When you get there, say there. There. Great. I'm going to read the, the rest of the chapter from 32 to 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what, what, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to, to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do, you want, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great And a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Lord, thank you so much for your word tonight, God. We recognize, Lord, that you are speaking to us through your word. We recognize and honor your presence, Lord, as we open up your scripture as we open up the Bible tonight and study it. We pray, God, that you'd give us understanding, that your spirit would speak to us. We thank you, God, just as we ushered your presence here through worship. Lord, we just want to recognize that you're with us, to honor your presence with us, Lord. 
so many over these last 70 years of Queen Elizabeth's um, reign and rule were honored when she would, was able to meet with them, honored to be able to talk with the queen. Tonight, we get to talk to the king of kings. We get to be in your presence, Lord, and to receive from you, God. We want to honor your presence tonight and ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our study tonight involves a narrative literary element that can very easily get missed because of, of its subtlety. It's easy to read this next portion of chapter 10. Remember, that in the first part of chapter 10, we were talking about the rich young ruler. We were talking about divorce and all these different things. And so it's easy to kind of get into part two and to miss the subtleties that, the, that the, uh, our author tonight, Mark, was, was giving to us in his writing. It's easy to read this next portion of chapter 10 and dismiss it as three separate texts or three separate stories that have nothing to do with each other. They seem random, and it's easy to, con to consider them as just random, as just Mark was, was putting in another prediction of Jesus' death and this story of James and John and the story of blind Bartimaeus. But there's an intention behind the author. Mark is trying to get you somewhere when he is writing. That's one of the things as we're studying Scripture together. One of, the, one of the most important things that we need to figure out as we're studying Scripture is the authorial intent. What was the, why was the author writing in the first place? What was he trying to convey through the text? What is he trying to convey not only to the original readers, but to us as well? What was God trying to say through this text to each and every one of us through the, each and every season of life? There's an intention behind the author. Our text tonight involves a word, it's called intratextuality. It's a big word, intratextuality. I-N-T-R-A-T-E-X-T-U-A-L-I-T-Y. If you are taking notes tonight, makes me sound really smart, intratextuality. But this occurs when an author embeds phrases and ideas from his own earlier story into later texts within the same work. Jonathan Pennington, in his book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, he defines intertextuality like this. This term refers generally to the intentional but often subtle connections that an author makes to earlier parts of his work and later sections. So Mark's gospel is really unique in a lot of ways as we've been studying through his gospel. It's shorter than all the other gospels. And there's really kind of, it's very succinct where there are specific stories that are mentioned. There are, there's really a sense of urgency throughout the whole gospel account where he uses the word immediately very often throughout the gospel. It's, there are intentional stories, some of them that are unique to Mark, but some of them that are in other gospels. But for Mark, he um, intentionally leaves some of the stories out. It's very unique in, in the way that it is written. But here, Mark records, and maybe you have the title above this section in, in verse 32. Maybe the title says, Jesus foretells his death a third time or something like that. Mark is, is recording Jesus predicting his death a third time here. His earlier mentions are in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 38. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. And now here in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. 
And we as readers, as studiers of God's word, as we're reading through this and studying this account, we're meant to see this as hints about where the story is going. There's intention here from Mark. But we can only really see this at the end of the story, and that's the nature of good storytelling is as we continue to read the account over and over, the, begin, the reader begins to like notice these subtleties. Once we get to the end of the story and we see that Jesus was predicting of his own death and he's doing it multiple times, we can go back and start to notice the subtleties there that as he begins to write these, these, these things to connect stories together and to remind the reader what the account is all about. As he's putting all of these stories in and as he's mentioning all of these stories, Mark intentionally here again is reminding the reader, we're not just talking about stories, we're going somewhere. We're heading somewhere at the end of, this, uh, at the end of my account. I'm, going, I'm taking you somewhere. It's not just to show how amazing Jesus was in his life, but he, I want to show you how amazing he was in his death and his resurrection. And this is the, the whole purpose of the gospel accounts. It's really important for us to, to, to um, soak in the gospels on a consistent basis. It is so important for us as Christians, as we are studying the gospels, that this is something that we should be reading often. There's a purpose, there's a reason, I think, why it's at the beginning of the second part of our canon in Scripture, why the Gospels are at the beginning, because this is really the foundation of the new covenant. This is the foundation for each of us as Christians, as we see what Jesus has done for us, this is the foundation of our life. And as we begin to read these over and over, we start to see the reason why the, the authors put in these stories, the, the, what, what he, they were trying to draw out of these stories for each and every one of us. And characters, not just Christ, but characters in the Bible, as we will notice later on in our study tonight, but characters in the Bible, characters that you should be more like and characters that you shouldn't really be like, and, uh, and things that you should learn, mistakes that you should learn from, and victories that we should learn from. And, and as we are studying um, through Scripture, man, I really believe that the gospel should find a foundational peace in our own devotional life, that they should be read. I mean, this is what we sing about throughout each of our songs is, is what the gospels are presenting to us. It helps us even in our evangelism as we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around us. Sometimes we can, um, and, it's, and it's really great to be able to share the gospel in a way that is really simple and that we can uh, share to other people if we only have a moment with them. But there's something in the gospels, it's when, 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 we, when we read the title of these books, it's funny because it's like for us when we say, what is the gospel according to Tony? If I had to answer, what is the gospel according to Tony, I could maybe give you a, a few sentences that I would say, but Mark is saying, we're asking Mark, what is the gospel according to you? And he has 16 chapters to tell us what the gospel is according to him. We have Matthew, what's the gospel according to you? He's got 28 chapters to tell you what the gospel is according to, to him. And it's so important to, it, to um, develop these in our own life and to process this and to begin to say, man, as I am given the opportunity to say, what is the gospel according to me? I want to look back at these gospel accounts and to be able to say, this is what Jesus did not only then, but what he's doing in my life now and what he did in my life now. And not just stick to the simplicities of the gospel, which is awesome and important, but as well to develop the story 
with the people that we're sharing with, as we're witnessing with the people around us to develop this story and say, man, Jesus, it, it, there, there was a life of Jesus that is really important for the disciple to see. There's a life of Jesus that gives us hope. It's not just his death and resurrection. It was his life as well that gives us hope. It's what comes after his death and res- resurrection that gives us hope, and as well as his death and his resurrection. So really important for us as we begin tonight. So he says in verse 32, Mark says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, if you go um, to Israel, it's about 35,000, 30, not 35,000 feet, oh my gosh, that would be really high if it was 35,000 feet up. 3,500 feet up in, in elevation. So like it go, you literally go up the mountain. As you hit Jericho, you literally go up the mountain. That's why there's the Psalms of Ascents because we're going up to Jerusalem. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was, happened, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So they were walking to Jerusalem. Remember, again, this is his third prediction here in the gospel account, one a third of many in different gospel accounts. But as he's been sharing with them, he's sharing with the disciples what is going on, what is about to happen. He keeps reminding them this is what is going to happen. The, the Son of Man is going to die and in three days be resurrected. This is, where, this is where we're headed. Mark is reminding them in the story where we're headed. But it's really interesting that Mark records that they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. As good Bible studiers, we have to ask questions as we're going over Scripture and as we're studying Scripture. Why were they amazed? Why were they amazed as they were following Jesus? Why were some of them afraid as they were following Jesus and putting ourselves in the story here? You know, as as the disciples were following Jesus, they don't have the same luxury that we do as we're reading a story, right? You can kind of flip to the end of the story and you can, you know, get a little bit of a spoiler alert at the end that Jesus dies and he rises again. And you're like, okay, so right now, this is what's gonna happen. He's gonna, but he wins, he ultimately wins. We have that luxury, but put yourself in the, in the shoes of the disciples. They're hoping and their faith is that this is going to happen and that he will rise again. Their faith is this is the Messiah. This is the one we are waiting for. And so the amazement for them is look how determined Jesus is. Look how determined he is. It's not just he's one of the, one of the, the rest of them that are just walking up to Jerusalem, but Mark is specific here. He was leading the way. Jesus is leading the way, and this is like the basic 101 illustration of the disciple with Jesus, that Jesus is leading the way, and the disciples are following. Jesus is leading the way, and the disciples were following, but they were amazed that Jesus was so determined. He was leading the way, not just to a city, not just to Jerusalem. He was leading the way to suffering. He was leading the way to suffering. As he predicts his own death, he's showing the disciples, this is where we're going and I'm leading the way. There was a trust and a faith. 
This is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, when it says that he set his face like flint. This is the the determination of the Messiah is leading the way to to suffering. And we're following Jesus in the same way. He leads us and we follow the picture of discipleship. Discipleship is simply just following Jesus as he leads the way. But sometimes the direction is towards suffering. And that is a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because often what we hear in, in... in ministry or often what we hear in other churches and, and in the Christian life is that God wants the best for you, he wa- which is true, he does want the best for you, but he wants you to live in a prosperous life. He wants to, you to live with no suffering, no pain, all of these kind of things. And though that will happen one day in life, that may not happen in this life. That sometimes the, the direction that we're heading as a Christian and as disciples of Jesus is we're heading in the direction towards suffering. I remember when I was um, in Bible college, we were, uh, we were singing an old song. Um, some of you guys, some of you old timers may remember this song. But it was the song... Uh, the verse said, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I, what I need. Holiness is what you want from me. And then the next verse is righteousness. Righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. Righteousness is what you long for me. And then we get to the third verse, and I was like, what kind of sick joke is this? Because then we start singing brokenness. Brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. Brokenness is what you want from me. And I was like, time out. You ever get to that in worship where you're like, what did I just sing right now? What, what, am I, what did I just like say I would do just now? And uh, like lead me out into the waters where I can't, wait, hold on. What, what am I singing? You know, and uh, that was that moment for me. It was like brokenness is what I long for. Uh, hold the phone. I need to think about this for a second. Brokenness is maybe what I need but this is what you want from me, <laughs> you know, is like to be broken in this way, you know, but this is the reality of following Jesus is that we are following Jesus as the disciples were. Like ultimately we're reminded of this t- tonight as we, uh, before the last song that we sang, we were reminded of his death and, uh, and resurrection through communion. And there's a reason I believe also, I talked about this last Sunday, of, of, a, of the reason of being able to take this meal together, to t- come to the communion table and to take that meal together as a reminder of the freedom that we have in Jesus. As, as the Jews were able to take um, the Passover meal as a reminder of their freedom as God passed over their house when they had the blood of the lamb sprinkled over the doorpost and God passed over their house. And not, over, not only that, but God led them out of slavery, out of Egypt and freed them. In the same way as we take communion, it is that Passover that we're not going to suffer the wrath of God, that he's passing over us as we have the blood of Jesus sprinkled on the doorposts of our own hearts and he passes over and he leads us out of the slavery of our sin into his freedom. And that is the, beauty, the, the beautiful thing about communion, but also what communion does for us And what communion should remind us is the suffering that was on Christ. The suffering that Jesus endured for us. The suffering that he took on our behalf. 
but the suffering that he also leads us into, that in this life, in this world, this world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. The enemy hates Jesus and wants the same suffering on you. And as we're following Jesus, sometimes that, that direction is towards that. And so may, you might be experiencing something like that maybe in your job or maybe in your family or something like that, this kind of suffering that you're like, why am I in this? And often what the devil wants to put in your mind is those doubts that see you're not really a Christian. See, you're not really a follower of Jesus because God wouldn't lead you into this. Suffering is not on the, the menu for a Christian. You shouldn't be experiencing any kind of this suffering. The trials that you're experiencing, the tribulation that you're experiencing, Christians aren't supposed to feel that. They're not supposed to experience that. And those doubts begin to, man, am I really a child of God as I'm going through this? Am I really, do I really belong to him as I'm suffering through this? And communion is that reminder for us that, man, this life is really difficult. The life of following Jesus as we're going up to, the, to, to suffering, as we're following in that direction, man, it is hard sometimes. But we have someone who is leading the way. We have someone who has not only led the way, but he led the way not just to suffering, but through it and to victory. And as you are going through suffering, the hope is that the, the suffering is not going to be the end, that Jesus is going to lead you because he's been there before. He's going to lead you through that suffering ultimately to victory. And so it doesn't matter what the world can do to us because he's going to lead us through that ultimately to the end where we are with him, that we don't experience the pain and the suffering no longer because now we have his victory, the victory that he paid for us, the victory that he won in, through his death and through his resurrection, and we just have to follow. We get to follow him and go, God, I don't understand the circumstance I'm going through. I don't understand the pain that I'm going through. And some of you have experienced real, real pain. And I'm not denying that. And Christ is not denying that either. Jesus is not looking at that going, suck it up. You got to get up and keep going, suck it up. He's, he went through that pain as well. He went through pain as well and suffered the pain of the cross. Every sin laid upon his shoulder. Not only that, but he became sin for us and died on the cross for us and suffered the shame, the guilt, the pain, the suffering, all of that laid on his shoulders. And so he not only is, is with us, but he grieves with us. You may, you've may have lost somebody in your life Maybe you've gone through serious pain in your life and you go, does God even care? God knows it. He knows what you've gone through. He cares for you. He's walking you and leading you and saying, that's not the end of hope right there. That's not the end of the story right, th right there. If it was, then what are we doing here? If the end of the story was suffering, then what are we doing here? Because that was not the end of the story for our Savior. He pers pursued through it and became victorious. Amen. Well, Mark continues in verse 35, and he gives this really interesting story right after this. So he's, he's just, I mean, Jesus is pouring out his heart and, and predicting what is about to happen. All of these horrible things that they're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It's like Mark is really driving home the point here. And then in verse 35, James and John, sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and said, teacher, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, like, the timing of these guys is impeccable, right? Like, <laughs> you could have picked a better timing here, James and John, but go for it. You do you, boo-boo. And he said to them, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Man, the patience of Jesus and the long-suffering and the love that Jesus has for us. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard of it, they were like, we were supposed to discuss these things together. We're a 12 crew. Why are you going without us and asking these things and trying to get up the totem pole? And they were indignant here. You know that those who are considered rulers, this is what Jesus' response to them is, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." As Jesus is telling them what's going to happen, James and John, they approach him with this question, and they are, they're asking, hey, like, we want, to, we want to be at your right and at your left hand. Can we do that? You know, but Jesus asks them a really, um, a really interesting question here. What do you want me to do for you? As they ask, could you do anything that we ask God, would you grant us our wishes, Lord? Would you do anything that we're asking you? And Jesus doesn't say, no, like check your heart. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He gives them this opportunity to come to them. And what is their response? The response is we want power and we want authority. What, what, what can I do for you guys? We want power, we want authority, we want the prestige we want the honor. We want to be seen at your right and at your left hand. A really prominent position, especially in this time. This is a really prominent position in authority. I want to be at your side. And Jesus, his response to them, he's kind of drawing them to this conclusion. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The, the, the suffering that he's going to take on for us later on? Are you to be baptized with the same baptism that I'm, I'm baptized? And, he, and they said, yeah, we can do that. We are, we, we're willing to do that. We want to go through all of that. And in verse 39 through 40, in other words, Jesus says to his disciples, you're, yes, you're right. You're going to suffer like me. Each of the disciples, they suffered like Jesus, and we partake in his sufferings. And you're going to be baptized like me. You're going to be baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, in other words, what you're asking of me is not of me. You're trying to resemble the world. You're not trying to resemble me. 
Discipleship and following Jesus does not look like the world. In so many ways, it's actually quite opposite of the world. And he points this out here. He says, just as the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They take this authority and they lord it over them. They abuse it most often, but they, they carry it above everybody else. Look at me. Look at my power. Look at my authority. This is my position. I am over you. And he says, that's not what my disciples do. That is not how you are to walk with me. That is not for me to grant to you because the greatest ones in heaven are the ones who are slave to all. The greatest ones in heaven are ones that are weakest, that are serving others. It's not focused on power, it's not focused on prestige, it's not focused on personal glory. Our example is not the world, but our example is the one who leads us as Mark shows us in the, in the previous section, as we are supposed to lead, uh, or as we are supposed to follow our leader, he is our example. Christ is our example to be a slave and to be a servant to all, to sacrifice our greatest desires to serve the rest of the community, to serve the people around us. But why as Christians do we fall back to the world? Why, do we, why are we so enticed Right, like I, I wonder about that even by, of myself where it's like, man, God has made it so clear. It's almost like our natural is instinct as humans, we just need to do the opposite because so often it's like, why am I trying to be like the world? The world is, is telling me to climb the corporate ladder or to, to glory in my own power or my own authority, to seek it out, to seek authority over others. And in the Christian world, it's not anything different. It is so easy to, to be enticed and to seek out the stage. I want the stage. In worship ministry, the enticement is I want the microphone, right? I want, I want the solo. I want, peop, I want the spotlight on me so that people can see me and what God has given me, the authority that he's given me, the power that he's given me. I want people to see that. God, I want to be at your right hand on this stage. As you're on this stage, I want everybody to see I'm on his right hand. I'm at his right hand, I'm at his left hand, I am the one that's, and that is such a worldly way of thinking. Christ is saying that that is not the, the way that, the way that it, it should be. That's not the way my disciples should be. We even do that creatively. Uh, you know, the, 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 the danger as a creative artist in any field, in music or art, in any kind of artistry, the danger as a creative is to try to create something that exemplifies or that is demonstrated in the world. It's so easy to say, man, I want my art to look like that. I need my music to sound like that. That's what sells, that's what is a hit, that's what um, people are, are enticed by, that's what everybody is looking for. I need my music or I need my art to look like that. And the, the amazing thing as Christians is we have this unique ability we have this unique opportunity to create with the creator, with the one who created all of this, the one who created the heavens and the earth, 
the one who created the most beautiful sunsets, the one who created the most beautiful music, the one who created the most beautiful ambient sounds when you go out into, into like the, the, um, the woods or like my wife and I, we were out on the beach a lot this summer and to just sit there and to hear the, the waves and how just peaceful all of that and God created all of those things. And he says, you have access to the creator. You don't have to be like the world. You don't have to look like those things or sound like those things or be like those things. You can be like me. And that's what the disciple is trying to do, be like Christ. But it looks so different than the world. As a boss, to, as a CEO of, a, of your own company, to be a CEO who is following Jesus is going to look a lot different than the rest of the world. In fact, a lot of people might laugh or mock or say, man, you are doing this all wrong. And in fact, the way as you, are, as you are trying to run a company in the way that is glorifying God, sometimes even the world comes against that. I have a, I have a friend who is just getting beat down. Beat, I mean, he is running the, his company as best and as godly as humanly possible. And he's been, hitting with, been hit with all of these different trials, tribulations, and all these kind of things. And the temptation is to say, maybe I'm doing this wrong. Because this guy who is like, you know, holding back money, who's being dishonest, who's doing all of these things in a dishonest way, nothing seems to be happening to him, but everything seems to be happening to me. Maybe I'm doing this wrong. But that's the thing is, as a disciple, it is opposite of the world. And the world hates what we're doing, so it's going to come after what we're doing. And so, you know, for us, it is to remember this is, this is not how the disciple is supposed to be. As you're supposed to follow Jesus, as we're supposed to follow him, the, the, the goal, the, the drive, the purpose behind it is so different than the world. When we create things, we want to create things with the creator. Putting the world's demonstration and examples aside, I get to create with the creator. If I'm running a business, I want to run a business like Christ would run this business and to be honest before him. When I'm a student, I want to, be, I want to study the way that God wants me to study even though there's other ways to get around it and there's other things that you can do to, to, to you know, make the thing, I want to do what God is, is asking me to do in this position you know, and to not fall back to the world, not to look like the world, not to be drunk with power or with authority. And as, again, as Christians, it's so easy. To, those, those lines can be so muddied. The waters can be so muddied where it feels like a really amazing um, endeavor to say, you know, to, to, um, to be able to say like, man, one day I want to be a pastor. That's an amazing endeavor to have. And one day I want to be a worship leader, amazing endeavor to have. But it's easy for those lines to get, to get blurred and for the waters to get muddy, to, be, to, to seek it out for your own power, to seek it out for your own glory, for your own authority, instead of just going, you know what, I just want to be faithful. I just want to serve God. I don't care if it's here. I don't care if it's there. I don't care if it's out there. I just want to serve God because he's the one who sees it. It doesn't matter what everybody else sees. He's the one who sees it. I'm not giving, when I'm leading worship, I'm not giving an account to any single one of you when I'm leading worship. I'm giving an account to God. And that should drive a fear in our hearts. That should drive a sobriety in our hearts. That should drive a passion in our hearts of going, man, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful no matter who, it's, who I'm in front of or who is looking. I know God is looking. 
and I want to, I want to serve him with all of my heart. And so Mark then brings in this second story, very interesting second story. He says in verse 46, they came to Jericho, and, he was leave, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was waiting for this moment, and he's not going to miss it. He's not going to miss this opportunity with Jesus. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. I love that. I love that he noticed out of all of the, I mean, this is, they're coming up to worship, right? They're coming up for Passover. They're coming up to worship. There's thousands of people here, hundreds of people. There's so many people in this square, and he recognizes the one person. You're coming in here to worship, he recognizes you. He sees you, he sees your heart, he knows you by your name, and he recognizes the one person and says, call him, call her. And they, and they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. I wanna tell you guys that tonight. Take heart, get up, he is calling you. He's calling after you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus. He couldn't wait for this moment. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Related but more subtle than foreshadowing, as we kind of saw in verses 32 through 34, Related but more subtle than foreshadowing is a type of intertextuality where themes and ideas are worked out in more than one story. And as we're learning to study, of, to study the Bible, as we are digging deeper, as we're trying to study the Bible and learn how to study the Bible going verse by verse like this, what stands out to you here? What stands out to you in these two stories? Is there a repeated phrase? Is there something that, a circumstance maybe? What stands out to you guys here? And go for it, just let me know. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, it's right there, so I gave spoiler alert. It's the title of the message. <laughs> I'm trying to help you guys out. What do you want me to do for you? Mark is intentionally now linking these two stories together. Really interesting. As he predicts, as he you know, records the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, he here is linking these two stories together. What do you want me to do for you? This is the exact same words in Greek. There's nothing different in, the, in both stories. It, it, the same Greek words, it's the same English words for our translation here tonight. What do you want me to do for you? Mark is intentionally linking these two, two stories together because at face value, they seem really different. I'll be honest, like every time I've, you know, I read this, it's, it's easy to just cross over to it where it's like, okay, then he went, James and, and John, they came to him and said this, okay, next story, blind Bartimaeus, okay, next story, this, next story, this, and then Jesus died and rose again, okay, and that's the end of the gospel account, but there's a purpose here, there's a purpose here, he links, there's a hyperlink here in, in connecting these two stories together. Why is he doing that? Well, I believe there is a similar opportunity that is given to Bartimaeus. A similar opportunity that is given to Bar Bartimaeus. He's crying out, have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. Do whatever I ask of you. And Jesus says to him, now what do you want me to do for you? 
Now to the disciples, he's asking this, he's giving this opportunity, you can ask me anything you want, what do you want me to do for you? And now he's given the same opportunity to this blind beggar, as he's saying to be a servant of all, as he says to follow me as being a slave to all, a servant to all, he reaches out to the guy on the outskirts, to the guy on the fringes, to the guy everybody else has turned away from, to the one that nobody else wants anything to do with, and he says, now what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine what would you do if God gave you the opportunity to ask him anything? What would you do with that? You know, Solomon was given that opportunity and he said, I want more wisdom. What would you do tonight if God here came right in front of you and said, I, you can ask me anything. What do you want me to do for you? What would you ask for? What would you ask for? In another gospel account, John, in John chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, you can jot this down. John, John writes, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you catch that? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Notice the parallel here. The disciples are given an opportunity to ask Jesus anything in his name. What do they ask for? What do the disciples who are following Jesus, who are face-to-face with Jesus, who are walking with him every day, noticing what he's doing, the differences between him and the other rulers, the lessons that they've learned, all of this, this time that they get with Jesus, they get to ask him something, his own disciples. This is not just somebody random. These are the guys that spent time with him. These are the guys that were right next to him, the guys that leaned their head on his chest, the guys that are spending such intimate time with him. And as a disciple, Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And their response is power, authority. Power and authority. I want prestige. I want the honor. I want the glory. I want my own personal glory. And in the same way, Jesus asks this disciple, This one that everybody else is putting aside, the one that has been waiting for this moment. As soon as he hears Jesus is coming, he starts crying out. A disciple that we would look at and go, he's not like the other disciples. He's the one that we don't really want to be associated with. Nobody else wanted to be associated with this one, but the one that is crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Please call me to you. Jesus sees him, calls him, and he asks them the same thing. What do you want me to do for you? And his response, I need more faith. His response, I need you to heal me. I need more faith. I need you to heal me. What would be our response? Are we, now this is what Mark is doing. He's saying, what character do you want to be in this story? Do you want to be James and John, the ones that come to him and say power and authority? Or do you want to be the blind beggar saying, son of David, have mercy. I need healing. I need, your, I need more faith. I need you to come and heal me. We have the same opportunity to ask Jesus for anything. Whatever you ask in my name, this is the, the opportunity that he's given to every one of his disciples. Whatever you ask in my name, what do you want me to do for you? 
How will we respond in pride and confession and humility and in self-gratification? What, are we, what is our response? And consider the weight of Bartimaeus' response here. When he says, I mean, there's so much weight to, to this sentence. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. There is so much weight here. There is a confession here. As he says, let me recover my sight, there's a confession of weakness. Again, this is a blind man that is begging for alms. This is a blind man that is, is used to begging. It's so easy for him to say, give me all the money in the world. I don't want to beg anymore. Give me the, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. He could have asked for so many different things, but he confesses his weakness. He confesses his weakness before God. God, re- help me recover my sight. I'm weak before you. This is my sin laid bare before you. I need you to heal me. I don't want the power, the authority, the glory. I just need you to heal me. I need more faith. He asks for more faith because Jesus' response, go your way, your faith has made you well. God, give me more faith. I know you can do this. I know you can heal me. I want to have more faith. And from there, immediately he recovered his sight. And what does he do? He follows him. He becomes a disciple. He follows after Jesus and and wants to be his disciple, wants to follow him as the other disciples do as well. There's two responses here that we have tonight as disciples. Two responses here that we have as disciples. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? When we come to service, When we come to worship, when we come before the throne room, when we come before the throne of God and and can come to him unashamed and can come to him bearing everything before him, every single time we walk into the room, as we were talking about, every single time when, when he walks into the room, when we are meeting him here, every single time that we get to have an opportunity with God, no matter if it's here, no matter if it's there, no matter if it's out there, no matter if it's in our car, no matter if it's at home, no matter if it's down aisle nine at Smith's, no matter where we are with God, we have this opportunity that God says, what do you want me to do for you? What are you asking me to do for you? And you have two responses here. You have the response of pride. God, I want the power. I want the authority. I want to sit at your right hand. I want everybody to see me in my glory. Or you have the response of blind Bartimaeus saying, I need you, God. Give me more faith. Heal me, Lord. I want to confess my sin before you. None of us are perfect in this room, and a lot of times we act like it, right? A lot of times we act like it, and notice blind Bartimaeus is going, I'm not going to even act like this right here in front of Jesus, in front of all these thousands of people. I'm blind. I need sight. And this is the opportunity. You have the the safety of the body of Christ to confess your sin before him and say, God, I'm weak. This, This is my struggle, God. I'm struggling with this. I've made a mistake again in this. My marriage is struggling in this. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling in my walk with you. God, I am just in need. I need your healing, Lord. Give me more faith, God. As we're being led to suffering often, it is okay for the blind man to say, for the blind woman and the blind man to say, help me to recover my sight, Lord. I need more faith. I need you to heal me. And tonight I want to have an opportunity as we 
as we close in worship, I just wanted to, to have an opportunity. There's no calling t- tonight. There's no um, call forward or anything like that. And, and uh, I just want an opportunity um, to be able to come before the Lord and just confess, to take the response of Bartimaeus and to apply it to our, to our own life, to my own life, and to just take a moment in worship tonight to, to sit at his feet and just confess, God, I need you. I need healing. I need more faith. I want to be more like you. I don't want the power. I don't want the authority. I don't want the glory. I don't want any of that. I need you. And that might mean that you need to pull the person next to you. I mean, we can, if there's pastors here, we can definitely be open tonight and pray for you tonight. But that's what the body of Christ is for, is to remind each other, I'm just, like, I'm just as blind as you are. I'm just as broken as you are in different areas, but just as broken. I'm in need of his healing just as much as you do. Let's link arm in arm and just pray with one another. And to just pray for one another and say, God, we just, we need you. We need your healing We need your power. We need your presence with us. So let me pray for us tonight. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in this place, Lord. And we thank you, God, that right now you are calling out to us. Lord, I bet you right now, God, I don't even need to hear it verbally. I bet you right now there are those of us in this room right now that are screaming at the top of their lungs and their hearts, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Nobody else sees what I've done, but you see it. Have mercy on me. I know that there's probably some of us in here that have, are so burdened by their pain, by real pain, real situations in their life, Lord, that has just caused trauma and pain, things that were done to them that they did not deserve, that have just left a wound and are crying out, Son of David, have mercy. Lord, many of us are walking in this place just full of shame. God, I can't even lift up my head. I'm the one on the outside, the one that nobody else wants. This church doesn't want me. You don't want me. I pray, God, that tonight they would hear your voice calling out to them. Come to me. Lord, help us tonight as we come before your throne tonight, as we just come into worship again tonight and close in worship. I pray, Lord, that we would, just as the blind man, we would spring up and we would run to you. We'd run to your feet and confess our sin before you and to receive your healing tonight. Do a work here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.